Water song, Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel from his album, famous album, Once Upon a Time. So it was a big hit in 1986. And 1896. You and I are both around for that. (laughs) That's when songs were melodic, melodic, 1896. 40 years ago this week, Peter Gabriel launched the three-day festival WOMAD, a world of music, arts and dance. The first ever festival held at a showground in Somerset, England, financial disaster, but an artistic success, and he revived it the next year, bless him, and WOMAD carried on, establishing itself in many countries over the following few years. After a two-year hiatus, it's been announced today that WOMAD NZ returns for three epic days of sounds, scenery, and good vibrations at TSB Bowl of Brooklands in New Plymouth in March next year. Good news to start, start the second half. Have you ever been Georgie or Martin? I haven't, and I actually really, really, really want to go. Um, I looked at it a couple of years ago, and then, yeah, COVID hit, mm. so that's awesome news. It's more fun than an office party. <laughs> Better be. <laughs> Likewise, always wanted to go. I never had the uh, the timing. has just never been right for me to go. Um, but uh, always, it's always been one of those things on the bucket list to do. Well, it's now back. Great. Brilliant. 26 to 5, how bad have things got that local government New Zealand's has uh, had to release an information package on how to keep their councillors safe? New survey data finds nearly 50% of elected local government members have experienced racism or gender discrimination while in office. 43% other forms of harassment, prejudice, threatening or derogatory behaviour. Fisher Wang's joining us right away, the youngest Rotorua councillor on the Rotorua Lakes Council and a committee member at Local Government New Zealand. Kia ora Fisher. Kia ora. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Obvious first question. You hear this and you think it must put good people off standing for local government. Did it give you pause when you first stood? Um... Well, when I first stood, I think I might have been a little bit naive and um, went in with um, very high hopes, um, but it almost felt a bit like you were thrown into the deep end and um, had to deal with, um, unfortunately, with some of this um, discrimination and some of that nastiness coming forward. What Um, have you experienced? What have you had to put up with? Well, during the campaigning um, season in 2019, um, I unfortunately had to deal with um, quite a bit of racism um, and also the age discrimination as well. Um, that uh, kind of uh, flowed on uh, after the uh, election into 2020 and the uh, pandemic, the start of the pandemic, uh, was the um, kind of anti-Asian sentiment uh, as a result of the pandemic. Okay, and it was quite open and upfront. You know, it wasn't something that you found buried away. This was clear and present in your life. Yes, yes, and, and I think in the day, in the modern day of um, social media technology, um, you know, these these things are so easily accessible. Um, it is very um, e- easily found um, I- anywhere, um, and it's also very easy for people to. Um, put forward those views as well. I want to ask you a bit more before we get our panellists in on this because the local government chief executive Susan Freeman-Green says she's concerned about behaviour and rhetoric already on show in the early stages of campaigning for the October elections. Uh, Fisher, do you know of people who would be an asset to local government but simply wouldn't want to because of what they'll encounter? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think your first point on that, um, you know, that we would be losing good people. Um, I've seen firsthand, um, and, and um, the committee that I'm on with LGNZ is uh, the Young Elected Members Committee, and it's a group of, um, it was a group formed um, by uh, local government New Zealand uh, specifically to um, almost empower um, people under 40 who are elected members. That only stands for about 13%. Um, I've had, um, I've been fortunate enough to meet so many amazing, passionate young people. Um, many of them aren't standing again because of the current political climate. Um, because of what they've experienced, the harassment to themselves, to their families, to their friends. Um, and some of them just want more privacy. Some of, some of them just feel like, you know, it's unsafe. They want to move on. So it goes um, beyond it, abuse. You're talking about danger, aren't you? They feel in danger. Yes, yes. Well, I, I would almost say that local government, we're at the grassroots level. We're out there in the community, um, often the first point of contact. And to be in those, um, and to feel unsafe in those positions, um, is really unfortunate when when that's when you're trying to do your job. Um, that's that's your job, and you're trying to listen to the community. You're trying to get out there into the community. But if you feel unsafe doing it, and so many of them do, um, it was almost like the last straw. And um, and and a lot of them have decided that they wouldn't run some of them. I know it has put people off running as well. Yeah. And then also when I've been asked from people, um, potential candidates, um, people thinking of running for local government, you know, how has it been? Um, I sometimes feel like, oh, do I give them the honest answer or do I give them, you know, the almost a sugar-coated answer? Well, that's thoroughly dispiriting, isn't it? So at first glance, you think 105 respondents across 56 local authorities you know, that may be a small sample size, but you're, you're saying this gives us a really good picture. Yes, yes. Um, the, even, even though, uh, you know, the young elected members under 40 stand for about 13% of all elected members, I mean, that, that statistic itself is um, quite um, disappointing as well. It has yeah. been growing, um, but it is still quite disappointing to see it so low because it is not representative of the community um, right now. And the number of respondents, and I've seen the um, numbers uh, through that uh, survey, um, it is really, um, you know, your heart almost sinks when you read about so many people, um, even though it was just that little um, group of people who were surveyed, um, you can almost imagine how big the problem is on a national scale. Fisher Wang still with us, and we'll bring in our panellists. I want to ask you, Georgie, uh, close to a quarter of the mayors and councillors surveyed are not sure how to report harassment or discrimination. What does that mean, do you think? They don't know what, who to report it to or what use it would be reporting it, maybe? What do you think? Well, actually, CERT, um, I think, plays a role there, as does NetSafe. Um, but it's part of a bigger problem in this space that we have in New Zealand around um, the there are almost no repercussions for this sort of um, abuse, particularly when it's when it's online. I had a really horrible experience recently and ended up going to the police and went through the harmful digital communications um, bill. It was a prosecution under that act. And this guy had to pay a 200 
dollar fine, um, and he did it over three and a half months or something. It was, and it was kind of all a bit of a joke. And I actually felt really, really unsafe. And I'm not running for for politics. And and you know, Fisher, it's not just local government, right? This is happening. Cabinet ministers, senior cabinet ministers, male and female, um, politicians, MPs. This is a real problem and it's exactly the opposite of the sort of arena we need to have to get a better range of, of talent and skills and diversity and ages uh, representing us. So there are no... We, all, we seem to get stuck on the freedom of speech debate at the moment, I think, um, and, you know, I just want to say to you, Fisher, if, if, if it's online abuse and the spelling is wrong and the punctuation is wrong, you should immediately discount that person as an idiot. Yeah, I'm sure Fisher's <laughs> doing that already, aren't you? Or a version <laughs> well, of that. Um, <laughs> I would, um, uh, one thing that I always say is that, you know, they can critique, they can criticise your decisions, they can criticise your, your position, mm. or, um, you know, um, your, your work, um, that, that side of things. But as soon as they start criticising your personal life, anything, you know, anything personal, um, that's when they lose all their credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Look, just quickly, um, Susan Freeman-Green says there are more pro- productive and inclusive ways for people to get their voices heard on important issues. But people do use those productive ways all the time. So what we're talking about here, Fisher, is exasperated people, people who are angry, people who feel neglected, not heard. I mean, pointing out better ways won't work with them, many of them presumably. Uh, yes, well, I oh, I think, um, you know, pointing out the better ways, I mean, I'll use a personal experience with this one. I put forward a code of conduct complaint against um, a fellow councillor. Um, that process was almost felt like it gave um, the, the councillor that I was putting the complaint about more um, airtime more power than it did give to me. Um, it felt like they were more supported than the complainant, um, and and the whole situation in the end, um, very much like um, what was just mentioned before with the Harmful and Digital Communications Act, um, there was almost not even a slap on slap on the hand. Um, it, that's what it felt like, and it is um, quite. Um, disparaging and disappointing when that happens because it almost feels like the bad behaviour is encouraged. Yeah, oxygen can make the fire higher. All right. Hey, thank you for joining us, Fisher, and that was an eye-opening personal experience from you. Very good to have you on the panel. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Fisher Wang. And Martin, I just want to include you in on this before we move on because it kind of relates back in a sense to what was raised by Georgie before the four o'clock news. Mm-hmm. So how would you characterise this? Is this a sort of rising tide to go with the increased the increased unruliness in society generally? How would you describe what's happening? Well, so, you know, why are we angrier? Is this a post-Trump thing? You know, we just, we, we, you know, he seemed to rip the band out of being, it's okay to be a racist, it's okay to be misogynist, it's okay to be, you know, to, to, to be a keyboard warrior and hide behind a, a pseudonym. I don't, you know, I don't know why. Why are we there? Why are we at that point now? And as George has said, you know, it's the House of Representatives, right? Parliament. That's what it's called. It, you know, it reflects. It should reflect the community. You know, the awesome diversity that we've got in Aotearoa now of, you know, of 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 different cultures and different people and th- that whole thing. We should be celebrating this instead of shooting these people down for putting, 
you know, if they want to do better for their community and why they're there. It's a quarter to five. Auckland Council's been looking for public opinion on what to do with all the land public golf courses are on. The official position is public golf courses are generally large parcels of open space and there's a lot of potential to open these up for more people to enjoy. So play spaces, walking, running, cycling paths, etc. Before we go further, this is a good idea or not because it applies, you would think, to golf courses all over the place and um, internationally as well. Yes to these ideas or keep golf courses for golfers, Georgie? Oh, no, take them off them. <laughs> no. It's just because you don't play golf. I, think, you, um, I tried, I tried. I was terrible, really, really, really bad. No, I, I quite like this idea. I think there is enough land for everyone to um, to, to get their slice of it, I, I suppose. This is sort of what they did in Christchurch after the earthquakes with the red zone when all the homes were mm. bought out by the Crown. It's now the most wonderful natural area and... There's plans for outdoor concerts and, and, and veggie gardens and there's an incredible walkway and cycleway. So, you know, using public land and golf courses are massive. Do you need that many holes? How many is it? 20 something? How many yeah. holes? Um, 20. 26. <laughs> they could just do a nine <laughs> hole, uh, you know? Yeah, I want to ask about nine holes once we get Spencer Cooper on. Uh, Martin, do you play or are you, are you handicapped by not enough time? No, I'm just, I'm just handicapped in general, actually, Jim. But um, no, I don't, I don't play, uh, play at all. But, you know, down here in Wellington, we've got the Berenpool Golf Course, uh, which is the, you know, the Mornington Golf Club out there. You know, it, um, it's 37 hectares of green space. They've got 100 members. The average is seven people play a day. And if you're not a member, it's an honesty box, box for your green fees. Uh, and I just think that is, a, you know, yes, I'm all for green space, but that is, you know, I think that's ludicrous. There's got to be a better use of that kind of space. 37 hectares in the CBD, uh, not the CBD, just in the outskirts of the city. Okay. Anyway, nevertheless, 59% of people didn't entirely support the draft plan, 24% partially did, but a sizable 53% supported the objective of best, best practice in ecosystem management and biodiversity hmm. conservation. And the overseas experience can be creating a wilderness again and reintroducing native grasses and meadows of wildflowers and all sorts. All for Spe- it. Spencer Cooper is the Remoera Golf Club Superintendent. Spencer, kia ora. Kia ora, how are you doing? Thanks. What are you doing at your golf course? Yeah, well, it's um, it's been an amazing adventure. We, we started back in 2014, 2015 uh, with some environmental plans. It was part of the club's strategy to improve the land use and the land habitat uh, not only for the enjoyment of golfers, but also for the community and to complement the local uh, reserve, which is borders the golf course, called the Waiatura Reserve and Wetlands. So uh, we started to develop an environmental strategy and plans to improve our land and, and attract more wildlife and create a more sustainable golfing experience. Okay, but would having cyclists and walkers and sand pits with children playing bother golfers and would you ever go that far yeah well as far as possible that that would be amazing but the the problem with that is obviously golf balls flying all over the place and we don't want anyone getting hurt on the golf course while they're enjoying it so having children playing in bunkers and and people riding bicycles in among (laughs) golf balls flying around (laughs) could cause all sorts of issues 
Um, so, yeah, it is a be- uh, delicate balancing act, that's for sure. Do you need 18 holes, Georgie was asking? I mean, could you play courses backwards? You go one way and then play back using two lots of greens and sand traps. You could actually play 18 holes that way. There, there are all sorts of options, and there are many, many nine-hole golf courses in the country, and in Auckland, in fact, there's a couple. Um, so there are those options out there. The thing right now is golf is a hugely popular sport, uh, there's about 500,000 that play people that play golf in New Zealand at present. It's probably the biggest participated sport in the country by quite a margin. So the demand for golf is massive at the moment. So why were there only seven on Martin's course? <laughs> it's a bit yeah, bewildering. Everyone's different, but uh, I mean, for example, here at Rimawera Golf Club, we are packed to the rafters most days. And I believe most golf courses in Auckland, that literally the demand is unbelievable and there's waiting lists for people to join golf clubs and to, to get a spot to play golf. At the Why moment. is that? So, Why the resurgent popularity? Um, that's a good question. A couple of factors, we believe. There seems to be, uh, with COVID, uh, people and families want to get out and play sports that are... Uh, you can enjoy outdoors in nature and not uh, come into contact with too many other people. So you can play in your bubble or you can play on your own. And it's a fun, healthy, social sport that everyone can enjoy at their own pace without having close contact in buildings. Yes, um, actually, it's funny you should mention that because we mentioned on Sunday morning recently how Dean Martin and other celebrities loved golf because it's one of the rare times that some men and women can fully escape from the madding crowd. And it, and also busy people, not just celebs. But is that enough of a reason to let golfers monopolise all the land? The popularity in sport is one thing. I think the other thing is for, for urban golf courses here, for example, in Auckland, like ourselves, we have an amazing opportunity and we have an amazing piece of land that we can create habitat and viable green spaces for for the community and for the city and, and create amazing habitats, as I say, and, and really help the environment and create green space where potentially there'd be very little. Okay, but how many of our courses would feature a lot of native planting, for mm. instance? In, in fact, it's, there's been an amazing amount of work done over the last few years on golf courses throughout Auckland and the country, pest trapping and planting natives uh, to replace a lot of the exotics. And there are huge planting programs underway. We, we've done quite a bit on our golf course, but there's heaps being done throughout the city that people just don't hear about or know about. Okay. And a lot of golf clubs, to be fair, don't communicate the amazing work that they are doing and so yeah i think we need to do a better job of actually telling the story to be honest spencer thank you spencer cooper from the remuera golf club actually just quickly on fast company the website if you think your employer doesn't look after you well enough 11 stories up on a rooftop at the corporate campus of one of america's biggest banks i want to ask you about this employees play miniature golf they have a drink at the bar. The bank's called Capital One. You can see the rooftop online with its 18-hole mini golf course with bright green astroturf. And it covers 1.2 acres, including parkland. This is on top of a building, which gets around the civic requirement for natural space when you're building high-rises. Yeah.
Are we, <laughs> so the question going back to what we were talking about before the news headlines, are we looked after well enough in our jo- jobs? Would mini golf help? No, no. I feel no. I, I feel many a conflict. I, I'm, I mean, I get quite competitive, especially when it comes to mini golf. So that would not be a good workplace activity <laughs> for me. Um, no, that's too far, isn't it? I mean, the, I agree with Spencer. The, the the beauty of golf, and I can see the attraction, is to be outside and to be walking around in the the real world, um, and and not have a huge amount of people around you. So. In some sort of on top of a building with mm. fake grass, and it's all just—it's all a bit wrong, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like I feel—I feel like a bit of a curmudgeon on this one. You sounded yeah, just yeah. then like a bit of a curmudgeon on that one. <laughs> yeah, too. Well, so, I'm sorry. I just damn. I just think you know. There's, a, there's yeah. Oh yeah. I won't get into it. <laughs> well, Mark Twain did say it's words to the effect of that golf was like a good walk ruined. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in in man. Christchurch though, um, you know, Spencer just made the point about not having kids and cyclists and stuff. Hagley Park, which is in the middle of the city, mm. has a golf course, and many a cyclist and walker moseys on by and has never been hit in the head. Um, I don't know how that works. I've never really thought about it, but th- there's got to be a way to, to, to have harmony between, you know, multiple activities. Because we've, managed to get we've our, already got it. Indeed. We've managed to get our last guest up, so we'll go to him very shortly. Georgie Stalliano and Martin Bosley are on the panel until uh, 5 o'clock, another five minutes. A new house has been put up in 13 hours in central Otago. It was a pre-made off-site. It's the first project from Flexi House. It's not your usual prefab or modular home. The pre-made components can be disassembled and put together easily, and it's the first of its kind in New Zealand. But is it a radical solution to help fix the housing crisis? Mark Graham, uh, experienced in the ways of the building industry and a former publisher of The Building Guide, is with us with his opinion. Kia ora, Mark. Good afternoon. Sure, Jim. It's been a while. It's been a while. It sounds pretty good, this, doesn't it? A house up in 13 hours. What do you think? Fantastic. I, I, I love it. But it's a sharing shed and it's not the solution. It's not the solution. <laughs> well, that was a very succinct answer and I'm grateful for it. Uh, but it's not quite Thanks the answer I was expecting. Because, I mean, mass producing takes out the need for an architect and an engineer. And I'm sure you could manufacture a mass produced house as well as a sharing shed. This must save a bit of money. Well, yes, but uh, we've already got modular housing going on, and so, you know, in and of itself, it's not overly new, although the speed was pretty impressive. And honestly, you know, uh, whoever did the PR for them, Georgie, you should hire that. <laughs> you know, they've done a great job. In defence, in defence of this building, it's not quite a sharing shed. It's a one-bedroom, two-bathroom workers' quarters with an open-plan kitchen and living area. Yeah, sharing shed. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Look, uh, that's all great for the Otago Highlands, but look at most of the building going on. That's in the city, and what are we building? We're building multi-unit, medium-density housing. You know, three stories high and um, six, seven, up to six, seven units, even more on a single site. So if we're going to build that kind of dwelling, then they're going to have miles and miles of suburbs of this kind of thing. It's just not what we're doing anymore, uh, nor what we want. So it's it's not really going to provide the solution. It'll be part of the solution, and that's great, but it's not. It's not. 
to run defence on it further, Mark, <laughs> um, houses, I was reading, houses can be modified as owners' needs change, components can be form can form a part, new part of a house or even be taken away and used on a different project. That sounds a bit like the future, Mark Grant. Yeah, but again, there's nothing new in this. Mm. This is existing out there already. We've had modular housing for, for years. In fact, I think I've already had this conversation with you on at least one, maybe two occasions before over the years. So it does look good, and the PR person did a great job, but, uh, um, you know, we need... We need uh, medium-density housing in our cities. We need greater transport access, public transport access, light rail. We need to uh, set up bicycle paths because this is what we're creating, not, not, not miles and miles of suburban wasteland with these uh, houses built individually needing cars to get around. Georgie, did I hear you murmuring assent? N- no. Oh. No, I don't know what that means. No, I was going to well, say. I, I, I was going to say that this is my, my sister built a tiny house in um, rural Christchurch, and and her plan was to do you know to drop it on a piece of land if she could one day afford a piece of land and then build bits on. So I think I, I take the point, Mark, that's sort of not 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 new. But I, I suppose the question could be if we've got this gadget, this flexi house. Could we? Could it? Does it have the potential to be applied in a multi-unit, medium-density sort of setting? I'd love Mark to be able to answer that, oh, but sorry. alas, no, no, it's not your fault. Alas, <laughs> we are out of time. Mark Graham, thank you for joining us, and also our panelists today, Georgie Stalianu and Martin Bosley. Uh, grateful to have you both on, and thanks for your great contributions. Pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. That is us. That is us for another day. Uh, it's been Jim filling in for Wallace Chapman. And hopefully you'll have Wallace back tomorrow. And we're standing by for Checkpoint with Lisa Owen.